Welcome to The Catalyst, where we explore creative ideas to spark innovation in an unhealthy healthcare system. I'm your host, Dr. Lara Salyer, a physician and mom of three who is reimagining the way I practice medicine after suffering and overcoming burnout. Join me as I teach you how to optimize flow and catalyze your own revolution in healing. Tune in for candid conversations with leading experts in conventional and holistic healthcare who dare to believe a better future is possible for all of us. Life is made of teeny catalytic moments of immense impact. When strung together, the transformation is magical. Join us and let's color outside the lines. In this episode, I interview Laura Bennett. She's a certified executive anti-burnout coach and organizational developmental advisor. She works with professionals across all stripes. We're talking healthcare, military, police, firefighters, EMS. She has over 24 years of service in the Navy. So she's a firecracker. I met her first at the Healthcare Burnout Symposium Conference. Boy, that's a hard one. I'm telling you, it's not very fun. But the gold is all the people you meet there. She's one of them. She is definitely a catalyst for change. And I enjoyed learning about what she feels can help, even if you're in the very beginning of training or if you're up in administration. What are some key things you can do to spot burnout? How you can start infusing some anti-burnout practices into your day-to-day and learn more at herantiburnout.org. So without further ado, here is Laura. All right. Welcome to the Catalyst Podcast. I have such a treat. Laura Bennett, I saw you at the Healthcare Burnout Symposium in San Francisco, California. I listened to you talk. You have such a compelling story. Over 24 years of experience in the military, in the Navy. Oh, it's just amazing. The things that you're doing in the burnout space were really inspiring at an organizational level. And As I listen to all the speakers at the conference, you really get a picture of the different nuances and textures that burnout has. There isn't one quick answer. There isn't one root cause. And all of us need to be present in whatever tools we bring to the table to help excavate the shiny underneath that we all still have. So I'm excited you're here to share your experience on what you've been doing to help burnout. Thank you, Laura. Oh, no. Uh, you Well, first, you're welcome. And thank you. It's, it was such a pleasure to meet you. And I love your energy around this, uh, this topic and, and your experience. I think it brings so much uh, to the, you bring so much to the table. And I appreciate you convening this podcast. Uh, as an effort to sort of get the word out. So thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And firsthand, you have got to to share the experience you have firsthand in the military. Now, being my ex-military myself, I'm a a wife of an ex-army doctor. My brother is in the Navy. Um, A lot of times, would you agree that it's kind of hard to admit you're burned out in the military? Uh, I absolutely agree. Uh, <laughs> I think, um, you know, any sort of profession that you're the helper and not the helpee, uh, you know, lends to that. And I work in spaces, a variety of spaces where this is the truth. And I think that, uh, you know, in the military, we do breed sort of this, um, this mentality of, um, you know, in so many ways you get through so many things, you know, you create something out of nothing, you are handling really complex problems and, um, 
you know, when you can do that, because we do, it's so hard to step back and admit that something internally is going on. I also think that because people don't understand burnout, burnout is so poorly understood by people that it's a real thing. It's not sort of uh, a character flaw. It's a it's a well-studied phenomenon that has both has emotional, physiologic, uh, spiritual relationship dimensions to it. Yes. So, yeah, I think that uh, that's one thing that really helped me come to be able to say that I was burned out and see burnout in other people when I started to study it as a uh, phenomenon that is is well described in the literature. Right. And it is a shameful, almost guilty, grief-stricken state because especially in places like military training or healthcare training, you are serving, you are a helper, you know you signed up for this. And I feel like that also sets that precedent that you don't get much support from the outside because people look at us saying, well, you you know what you were signing up for. Of course, it's going to be hard. And like you mentioned, it's not that we are having a lack of, of grit. You know, it's not that we are deficient in resiliency. It is simply a, a, a very complex problem with, with brainwave patterns that can be measured of grief and with real physiologic issues of trauma. And, and I would love to hear your, your take on what led you down this road where you recognized, I need to study this further and I'd like to do more work in this area. Yeah, I had some, um, a few moments that you, you know it's it's like an onion right you peel the layers and and you you know things start to get stronger for you to where you're you're pushed into um you know I, if we use the onion analogy actually to where you're crying right you know Absolutely. maybe the first layer you're not crying but you're tearing up by the end when you're when you're peeling those onions um you know i had a few situations that were uh, you know, were pretty high stress. And, and I just started noticing that I wasn't showing up in the way that I wanted to for people. Um, I remember one particular case where I had a, a pretty negative interaction with a, with a young resident um, that sort of embarrassed me. You know, I embarrassed him and I was like, you know what? I didn't show up right. I went to, uh, my boss at the time. And, and, um, I said, you know, you may hear about this. Um, you know, I did apologize. And she said to me, um, you know, I did hear about that and I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, you have so many important things to say. We really need you in this role. Um, you're so critical to this mission and people aren't going to hear you. They're not going to listen if you show up in this way. Yeah. Um, and, and I recognize that that was a stress reaction. Um, and then I think another really big moment for me, um, was I was getting to the point that it was hard to really have any enjoyment of my time off. And I was stationed in Japan and, um, I was with my family at Fuji Q. It's a, it's a great um, amusement park that folks love to go to when they're stationed in Japan at the base of Mount Fuji. And my family had been waiting for this day off that I could have. Uh, and we, we were at the park and I was in line 
And all I was thinking about were all the things that were left undone at work, all the administrative things that I had to do. It was time for performance evaluations and we needed to solve some access to care issues. And yes. um, Yeah. So I'm sure everybody can relate to that where it almost clouds your free time and your joy. What should be joyous? What should be time when you don't have to think about work, it's suddenly infringing. It's that Sunday night gloom, the end of vacation feeling starts creeping in on Saturday and then Friday. And you know, you have to go back to work and suddenly you're having it on Friday afternoon when you're leaving work, you're already dreading Monday, right? Yeah, it is. And you know what else ended up happening was I was exposed to mindfulness uh, from an army doctor who uh, a colleague who was there, John Kabat-Zinn and Saki Santarelli had come uh, by invitation. Ooh, the OGs, the originals, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, he was taking time off from clinic to go to this training. And I said, well, what is that? And, uh, you know, as busy as I was, I wasn't about to engage in something. You know, I was tough, you know, in the gym at 5 a.m. And, you know, really taking care of myself in that way. Uh you know, to have something that was going to slow me down. Uh, I really needed to understand it. Right. It's counterintuitive that why would we need space and rest and recovery when we want to keep excelling? And that's exactly what our brain needs. Similarly, when you mentioned how your day was, or your freedom and your vacation was being impinged on this fog and smog of burnout. It's it's interesting to see that our brain can do the opposite. The more you experience joy and positivity and ex- exercise your hobbies and play and create, it actually can infuse more joy into your work. So it works both ways. And it's how people can understand that you can retroactively favor that equation where you can help yourself pedal out of burnout, but it's hard, right? When you're in the thick of it, our, our amygdala, it, man, when that is chronically fired with stress, it blocks all of our communication to be able to self-identify. So I think a lot of people have difficulty suppressing those negative emotions. And I see that in, in, I saw that in myself. I saw that in other people that are burned out. How did you finally identify and go, wait a second, I think I'm burned out. Yeah, well, it was it was through that study when I was looking, I, I started to look at some studies on mindfulness and, and under started to understand the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex and you know, how we process uh, memories and, and traumas and how things show up for us in our bodies and in our minds. And I found it really fascinating. So it wasn't until I really did the research on that, hey, there's there's something in the brain and body. Uh, that I began to practice. And, you know, I started with with um, some yoga practices that allowed me the ability to be still. And I started to notice this huge change in how I felt and how I saw the world, clarity and decision making. And when it also, those studies led me to studies on burnout. Uh, and I, I was like, whoa, this is it. This is what has made a lot of these, you know, junior physicians and and nurses and healthcare leaders, these people who I really respect and admire, they come in bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and a couple of years later, you just see a total change in their demeanor. I'm like, this not that's not something wrong with them. It's not a character flaw. This is burnout. So I got really interested in trying to understand it so fully, so that I could deliver programs in the military for it. That's amazing. And that's so needed because you're right. It is like a a facade that is is creeping over all of us. Burnout changes 
who you are on the outside. And I think a lot of it has to do with, we, we don't identify, we don't. And, and it's much like the medical student looking in these textbooks going, I think I have hemochromatosis because they fit all of the, the symptoms. And here you are, as well as I, as well as many going to seminars and learning about burnout or reading about it and going, wait a second, I think I meet those criteria. And that's one thing. And that's very brave to admit that I might be burned out. Very brave, because I think a lot of people push that aside. I don't know what your experience is, but I think it's still a very jagged little pill to swallow for many because there's shame wrapped around it, that there's something wrong with them, you know? Yeah, there sure is. And that's why I I think that I armed myself. I put my armor of the research around me to say, there's not something wrong with me as a person that, that drove me. And there's not something wrong with you. Right. Either look at this research that says this is the just the sequelae. This is simply the sequelae. Yes. Happens and there's a way to undo. I love that sequelae of what happens. Okay, so I'm going to be devil's advocate because I hear this a lot in the burnout space when you when you work with organizations and hospitals, and I would imagine it can have tendrils of similarities in the military. Physicians are a pretty logical bunch as are nurses and PAs, and we don't want to order a test unless it'll change our treatment plan, right? So we look at burnout the same. I've had lots of colleagues go, well, so what if I'm burnout? It's not going to change anything. The system's not going to change overnight. I'm still going to be here. I can't do anything to change. What would you say to that? Yeah, I think that um, I say different things depending on the situation. You know. You you have to um, build trust. You know, we say in the mindfulness community, you, you you can't just go and proselytize, right? People have to see the evidence, um, and storytelling is is really key. So I think that it really matters that people like you are out there telling their stories and saying, you know, I thought that too, and and sort of uh, owning the the. And calling out the shame that occurs, um, the the lack of under the lack of understanding, uh, the stigma, um, you know. So I, I think love it, that. Yeah, multifactorial on how you address. Yes, it. I, I think you've hit it absolutely. Laura is is awareness is curative. It's much like the anti-bullying campaigns you'll see in grade school now, that wasn't a part of my 80s or 90s upbringing. You know, we didn't have these anti-bullying little seminars, but, you know, kids are aware of this. They look on the playground, they have a buddy bench, they can go and sit if they want to have somebody to play with. There's a lot more of awareness, much like women's uh, issues in medicine or socioeconomic issues. There's a lot more awareness and that in itself isn't going to fix everything, but boy, it can cure a lot. It can help us all spot it. And I think you're absolutely right. This mindfulness around burnout, that if more people come together and share their testimony and just make it normalized. And in fact, I would, I would like to see that we normalize it sim- similar that we do grief. You know, everybody grieves the loss of a loved one and burnout is grief in the brain. So why can't we normalize that it's going to happen to most of us and to recognize when it happens and what tools to reach for? You know, it's so interesting that you say that about grief because I'm not sure we're even where we need to be on grief. Agreed. There's a Um, lot more to go. Yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, having had a a big loss in this last year um, and really getting into a 
an emotional place that I didn't think I'd ever be in again for that period of time. I'm like, what is, I, again, I first started, I had to really un- remember that it's appropriate, that there's not something wrong with me. Yes. Permission. You're right. You're right. Just when we think, okay, we felt all the emotions. Oh, guess what? You know, pandemic and now a war is making us have even more. And you're right. Just that permission to say, oh, here's a space I didn't even think I could get to. And for grief to not necessarily try to fix it. You know, I I was reading some amazing things on grief as I was going through. It It was actually the loss of a pet who, um, uh, it was, it was a, a tragic situation. And, and this, I, I just never thought that I could have this much of a sense of a loss over a pet. Um, and I was reading about this, uh, um, person who was grieving in the hospital and how everybody tried to come in and just tell him it was okay. And it'll get better, you know, and not allowing and fix him to fix it. Right. Mm-hmm. He, he locked himself in the bathroom to just have somebody to try not to fix it for him and let him have space to grieve. Oh, that's so absolutely beautiful. And that is a a very embodied feeling is I think as humans, we go around as helpers too. We're helping others. So we put our, our feelings aside for a moment to, to help hold space for others. And then when it turns on us, it's uncomfortable to feel. Yeah. And the the more we can feel the emotions fully and not dismiss and not numb it or dissociate away, the more we can really embrace that trauma, that grief, the uncomfortable feelings, the faster we can feel that fully. And it's not that we're trying to progress it through it faster, but it really does seem to not last as long. I don't know how you feel, but it's really helped me to think of it that way. Yeah, I think that it sort of depends on how you meet that that um, emotion. I think if you meet it with compassion uh, and allowing that you move through it, I think if you meet it with self pity and blame, yes, yes, you're right. I think mindset is everything. Um, mindset, you know, really can affect how we view ourselves in the place in the world. Yeah. So uh, regarding grief, you know, I think it, and and any emotion really that can be an uncomfortable emotion, I think it really depends on how you meet that emotion. You know, if you're meeting it with tenderness and allowing and compassion to say, yes, this is hard and it's okay. That's one thing. But if you meet yours or anyone else's emotion with anger or self-pity or blame, it really takes away your power to move through that. And I think we have to do a good self-examination whenever we are holding on to emotions for extended periods of time. What is really happening? Am I meeting this with compassion or am I in a place where I feel victimized and, and, um, by what's going on and, and, uh, you know, and holding on to that for, for some other reason. Very profound. I think the narratives that we tell ourselves, the mindset that we encourage, or maybe don't encourage or practice can make a huge difference on how we approach burnout and grief in our body. And these emotions, like you said, I love that word tenderness. If we can approach ourselves with tenderness and compassion um, and 
give us permission. We don't have to have it all figured out, you know, and to be shocked at this human existence can be quite painful. And what are we going to do with that information? You know, finding little bits of agency and autonomy, even in the constraints of a large burnout process where you're feeling like there's no hope. There's always some little part of hope that you can find in a day-to-day of choice, whether it's cleaning a little bit off of the corner of your desk or journaling in a positive gratitude journal. What are some of your favorite things that you help clients and hospitals try to infuse a little bit of this autonomy back? May I, um, before I answer that, I I want to... um, go to something that is critical that you said and I think is inherent uh, as a challenge in healthcare burnout, particularly physician burnout, is this concept of you don't have to have it all figured out. You know, as I'll I'll never forget, it was a profound moment with a a physician that uh, I used to work with and I had a, it was a medical related question for him and he didn't know the answer and got frustrated that, that I was asking and he was stressed. And I was like, it, 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 it was like a, a contentious interaction interaction. And I said to, to him, you, it's okay. If you don't know the answer, just say, you don't know the answer. And that was profound for him. Don't get mad at me for asking the question you don't know the answer to. You don't have to know all the things. And, and in that situation, I will say he was a black doctor. Uh, and he said, you don't understand what it's like to be a black doctor. Sure, I sure. have to know 200% more than all of my colleagues to be respected. So I'll just bring that in there a little bit too, uh, if that's okay. Yes, that's very valid. Every one of us has our own perspective and I can't blame anybody that goes through healthcare or military training when every single day you wake up and you're supposed to do pre-rounds before you're attending. You're supposed to know all the answers to the pimp questions. It's like we are fortified with these skills to have a knee-jerk response. And if you don't, it's very much a shameful thing. So it, it doesn't surprise me that any doctor would wouldn't feel very flustered if they don't have the answer. And it, it takes practice to say, I, I don't have the answer, but I'll, let me look it up. <laughs> and I think that's inherent though, that attitude that you have to have all the answers is a barrier to uh, physicians, first of all, not really understanding that it is a phenomenon that is well-described and it's not a character flaw, but, you know, being able to not having that answer. And I think it's also true in other uh, professions that I work with, uh, military, regardless of if they're healthcare, law enforcement, fire, um, and, and high-level leaders. Yes, Yes, it is both the uh, dark and light of a leader. You want a leader to be confident, to be approachable, to be driven, to find solutions, but yet you also want a leader to be human. And, And that's the hardest part is I think when we are driven by a culture of Google and patients walking into an exam room or a hospital room, very educated, and sometimes with good information, sometimes not. 
a lot of times doctors and nurses are having to explain things in smaller and smaller time frames, and they can get quite frustrated if they don't know the answer right away and they feel like they have no control over their schedule, over their, their time, over their autonomy, and that leads to burnout. What are some of the things you would recommend to institutions or even an individual listening right now who's thinking, wow, they've described me. How can I start backpedaling my way and become anti-burnout? Yeah, I think um, getting into this practice of self-awareness is first critical, whether you it's for yourself or uh, being anti-burnout for other people, really starting to tap into noticing what patterns show up for you and how you're responding to things. Noticing, are you really... Um, enjoying the moment, noticing how are you breathing, noticing if Dr. Google has um, triggered you and taking that pause in that interaction. And then I also think it's really time for, for folks on an individual level, as you speak to that, you know, patients coming in with more information to be able to thank them for taking charge of their health and admitting they're not familiar with what is being brought to them, but they would like the opportunity to take a look uh, when they have some time and, and honoring uh, that interaction, honoring that, that ask. Um, if you're talking about teams, examining how you're showing up for your team. What's it like to be in your own presence, right? Mm -hmm. You like being with you. Mm -hmm. um, we don't get that. I think a lot of physicians don't, once you're cut off from medical school, you get into residency and there really isn't much of a professional developmental support where you get to see how have my core values changed? What is it like? Am I an introvert or extrovert? Who am I? And I feel like the more people talk about this, like you said, how is it to be in your presence? You know, examining your energy. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? I love that. Do you get your energy from being around people or do you not? I used to think I was a really heavy extrovert and I am really not. I, you know, am an, an ENFJ uh, on the Myers-Briggs, but I'm very close to an I instead of an E, for those of you who, who know about that. You know, I, we need our time. What is it that you need? Start asking yourself those questions. What do you need? Uh, yes. Feeling empowered to step into whatever it is that you need and inviting your colleagues to say, hey, I want to be and I burn out. What what do I need to stop, start, and continue? What are you noticing about me? Start removing blind spots because there are things that we know about ourselves that other people don't know. It's that Johari window, right? Um, of we have things that are others know about us that we don't know about ourselves. We have things that we know about other people that they don't know about themselves. And then there's this other box of, and to recognize there are things we don't know about ourselves and neither does anyone else. And to, to begin to do practices that open up that window where there's less and less that you don't know about yourself um, and knowing that that's always a moving target because we're always yes. being shaped by 
um, our experiences. Yes. The unexamined life, right? Uh, we need to be examining our lives. And yet that feels like another task, you know, to an already overburdened, uh, bureaucratic, administrative, overloaded day that a physician or nurse may have. But I really think it's an important one because we don't get paired up with accountability buddies. Sure, we make friends in our training, in our residency, in our medical school. We might have attendings that might, you know, seem to uh, resonate with us. But really, that old school kind of um, way where we used to have these wonderful pairings of a doctor lounge and places where you could connect and really fortify, how do I show up? How do I work as a team? Those are gone. They're they're really not there anymore. And so we're having these physicians that have not as much leadership skills. They feel a little lost. They don't feel like they can tell anybody that they're feeling burned out or uncertain. And so to, to have those spaces, it would be wonderful to have a mentor or a coach in every residency or medical school, just as an availability basis for those struggling. What, what little wish list items would you have if you could recreate training in the military or in medical school? What would you like to have there? You know, uh, I really love what you just said, and it's, it's turning on a light bulb for me. Um, you know, I think uh, we need to be intentional about our interactions with each other because in places, there are really special places where folks get together. It could be the break room. It could be um, a doctor's lounge. It could be some association meeting. Um, but are we having the important conversations? You know, are we having the vulnerable conversations? I really think that coach training has has really changed the way I view about how we help ourselves and other people. If if I had a wish list, I think that having not not only could it transform healthcare practice uh, and healthcare interactions, healthcare leadership. It could also change how we interact with our patients and get and be able to coach them to better health. Coach, uh, understanding coaching skills and using those intentionally would be a very wonderful addition. And I think that I've noticed in some spaces, people can, can get together and just complain, right? So having that space where people can gather is one thing. But how intentional, what, what, what sort of rules are around there? Yes, have a facilitated gathering so it doesn't become just another negative vent session. Or in mastermind sessions. So that's, you know, that's part of what I like to do is have these facilitated meetings and then develop masterminds where people can um, be able to, to help one another. Absolutely. Emotions are contagious. I mean, many studies support that, that you can have, you know, a, pl- a person in a room that is coached to be specifically negative, and it really can infuse that whole room with negative energy. And so even just being aware of that is crucial. And I would think that it's not rocket science. I mean, having, you know, a flow centric coaching mechanism where you tap into core values, you know, what blocks your flow, what blind spots do you have? What kind of quirks should you be aware of? Um, and what are your strengths, how to leverage this so that you can communicate your ideas better and be open to hearing 
others' ideas and knowing, embodying those emotions, that can go a long way, I think, to being anti-burnout. If we can infuse that along training so people can speak with that common language, you know, and and be more aware of, of our human condition as it can be quite painful and we're up against some hard things. Right. I And I think that, you know, we infuse in medicine such a competition uh, from early on, right. You know, even just to get into school throughout school, to get the best residencies, to get the best facilities to, you know, how do we, um, there is a cultural shift that needs to occur. Uh, and I think that it has to begin in organizations and in taking a healthy look at at how we're um, infusing competitiveness as yes. part of it as well. And, and to also, how do we be healthy with our competition and really understand, you know, what, how is our identity, does our identity get wrapped up in that? You know, we have to get in touch with what matters most to us. Um, and we have to be careful to not let our profession be our identity. Who are oh, you? Oh, yes. At yes. the essence of your being. Right, um, right. How many badges we wear and hats and labels as physician, nurse, you know, officer, mom, daughter, you know, friend. And sometimes that identity gets way too top heavy with our profession because we've worked so hard for it. And it's such a delicate thing to feel. Uh, vulnerable when you are uncertain and you're wondering about, you know, skirting the periphery of burnout. Um, so I, I want to turn the table on you. What do you do that makes you feel fully alive? This is what I think should be the sixth vital sign. We should be asking all our patients, not where you're hurting because life is painful, but what is bringing you joy? What are you creative with? What is your fun hobby that you like to do? Oh, my fun hobby. Um, oh. I love to get outside. Anything that I can do outside is uh, something that brings me. I, 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 I'm shocked that it's true about me. It's something I learned in uh, in my 30s that I belong outside. Um, love hiking. Love biking. Take a walk. I love you know. I mean, I do yoga. I'm a yoga teacher also, um, and uh, love gardening. Um, the other Probably my biggest source of joy is uh, connection with my my family. I have my two adult children who I adore, and I'm really lucky they adore me. And I think that um, coming up, if I hadn't come out of burnout and hadn't started asking, you know, what's most important. Uh, especially in the military, when you're moving all the time and the kids are constantly having to adjust to new environments from one country to the next country and back and, you know, growing up in one culture and, and moving to another. Um, you know, I, I wasn't honoring what mattered most to me, which was my family. So, and how can I, how could I, this is the importance of the self-awareness and the practices that are really quite simple that don't take a ton of time is being able to notice when your attention is gone. And those three minutes of 
looking in your family members' eyes and hearing what they're saying and greeting your kids and your husband or wife like you haven't seen them in 20 years, you know, like you're just to see them. And in the morning, you know, doing the same thing. Those are the things that uh, infuse me with joy. Um, That's beautiful. It's very good to ground it almost like redeployment, right? They're coming back from, from overseas. You give them that hug and it's that oxytocin that grounds us, that makes us feel whole again. And, you know, it's those teeny things you mentioned. It's nothing big, you know, but it's that shared moment. And life is full of teeny moments of immense impact. And when when they're strung together, we catalyze greatness. So if you had to be stranded on like a deserted island and and you have a bag of tricks of, of things that keep you feeling alive, what would be the one, one thing that you would not be able to do without? One catalyst that is in your life every day. It could be a practice, a habit that you do, a particular food, or what is your one catalyzing thing that brings you joy? It is taking a moment and getting connected to really who I really am and stripping the rest. You know, it's, it's sort of like, I'll never forget. And you'll, you'll know who this is when I say this. Uh, um, well, I, I met somebody famous, um, famous to me. I was a group. It was Stephen Porges. So I ran into Stephen Porges at, yeah, at an art event and I got really excited. And I was like, Oh my God, you're Stephen Porges. Yeah. And, uh, selfie time. (laughs) I know I did get a selfie. Yay. Um, and you know, you know, I said, I follow your work and, you know, so on and so forth. I, you know, I really appreciate what you've contributed to the literature and, and so on and so forth. And he said, you know, who are you? And I said, well, I'm me. You know, uh, that was another sort of catalyst moment where I felt like I arrived. I didn't need to talk about my degrees. I didn't need to talk about my history. I didn't need to talk about what I do. And that's really what he was asking. Um, I love I didn't that. Talk about that. My husband is a, a international artist. You know, I didn't need to say any of because we were at an art event. It was just, you're I'm, just two humans connecting all exactly. geeking out about polyvagal and <laughs> what, who cares what I do. Right. Nobody. Um, I love that. Important, you know. I am love. You know, uh, that's that's what I am. So. That's a great story, Laura. That's it's beautiful. I think that's the epitome of feeling grounded and centered. Is we don't need any facade. We're just here learning and excited about the same things, and that's lovely. I love it. Okay, so where can people reach you if they're looking to learn more about anti burnout? If they're looking to have you consult, maybe at their organization, maybe with the military, police force. Tell us more about where we can find you. Well, I do have uh, two websites. One is uh, laurabennettassociates.com. And there you can look and see a variety of the services that I provide. And I'm also building out together with my son and some other industry partners, antiburnout.org. It's still uh, due to some, some life distractions in the very beginning phases of, of, of what it's going to be. 
My my uh, goal with antiburnout.org is to be sort of a one-stop repository for some resources and some thought leadership uh, and some ideas on, you know, one of the things that I see out there, there are a lot of tools that are being provided. And one thing I learned, uh, it was really big aha when I went, went back after I retired from the military and, and uh, clinical practice, I went back to get a, um, a master's in leadership and organization development. And I went through organization development work and found that there's a lot that's missing in leadership, uh, you know, when it comes to understanding organizations and change management and the neuroscience uh, of, of being a human being and being in an organization and responding to the world. So I want to add some of the, of what's missing, you know, fill in the gaps of, okay, there's this tool and here's some things you need to consider for your space because not every organization is ready for every tool at every time. There's Sometimes we fail to really lay the groundwork that's necessary to make the change that we need. Um, you know, so, so that is, that is the goal and to be able to connect people with, uh, with uh, other folks who are doing really good work that might be what, is needed for that organization at that time. And I'm also building out a, um, a sort of an anti-burnout leadership academy, if you will. Um, nice. That's awesome. Yeah. We we definitely need more of this work. I'm so grateful for your time, Laura. This has been wonderful. And it was a joy to hopefully run into you again at a future conference. I'm a big fan of what you're doing. And so everybody, please check out Laura Bennett and Associates, also anti-burnout. And I guess all I got to say is keep catalyzing, girl, because this is what we need in this space in so many flavors and textures. And you're, you're a sparkly gem. So thank you for everything you do. Thank you. You as well. You keep catalyzing. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you.